the twelfth verse, which is the last verse of the second psalm, is one of the most challenging verses in the chapter because of some of the translational issues. The way that the King James Version words it is, Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. As I said, the biggest challenge with this last verse of the second psalm is how to properly translate it, because it may not say what it sounds like it's saying in the King James Version. The challenge is related to the word that's translated son here. What's not obvious and when you read an English translation of this, or if you're not looking at the original language that underlies the translations, is that this is not the Hebrew word for son in this verse. The Hebrew word ben, B-E-N, that means son, is found five verses earlier in this chapter, in the seventh verse, when God says, thou art my son, but that is not the same word that's used here in the twelfth verse. Part of the challenge is the fact that the original Hebrew Old Testament did not contain vowels. Later, vowel points were added so that you could tell what vowel sounds should be included with the words, but originally they were not. All that you would see in the original Hebrew and the most ancient Hebrew texts were the consonants. And the reader, based on a number of different factors, including the context and the grammatical structure, would have to insert the vowel sounds when they were reading it out loud based on what the correct vowels would be for the word that he or she believed was being conveyed. Most scholars date the adding of the vowel points to the text of the Old Testament to the 700s AD. So the Hebrew Bible didn't have vowel points for the vast majority of its history. By the way, it's believed that the Jewish Masoretic scribes added the vowel points, essentially writing them into the original text, and that's where we get the name Masoretic, M-A-S-O-R-E-T-I-C, text. So when you hear someone talking about the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew scripture many modern translations are taken from, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about the text of the Old Testament that the Jewish Masoretic scribes, they're called Masoretes, copied. In their copying of it in the 700s AD, and later, they began adding vowel points so that people reading the Hebrew Bible would know how to properly pronounce the words as well as, as what words were being referred to. Coming back to the issue of this translated son in the King James Version in this verse, it's written out B-R. Remember, there's no vowel, so there would be a vowel between the B sound and the R sound. And the Masoretic scribes believed that B-R was intended to have the A vowel sound, and thus was the word bar. Bar, by the way, is not the Hebrew word for son. It's the Aramaic word for son. It's not clear why they thought the Aramaic word for son would be used in this statement when every other word in the chapter was in Hebrew. And that's led to a lot of controversy among scholars as to whether or not this word was the Aramaic word bar, if that's what it was originally intended, because all we know is we see the letters B and R. And so it takes an assumption to conclude that it's the Aramaic word bar and thus the word son or whether it was a Hebrew word that should have had a different vowel sound, which may mean it is something different than the word son. If this verse had been quoted somewhere else in the Bible with the Hebrew word for son, where it said kiss the son, and it used the word ben, B-E-N, or if it had been quoted by a New Testament writer using the Greek word for son when they quoted it, it might support the translation of this being kiss the son. But this verse isn't repeated anywhere else in the scripture. And as I said, all that's really in the original language is the letters B and R, which means the only reason to believe this is the word son is because the Jewish Masoretic scribes thought that it must be the Aramaic word bar. But we can't just guess at what words mean in the Bible. For those that are more technically inclined, I'll give you a couple quotes by some of the scholars of the original language on this issue. And they'll have slightly different viewpoints of what they think is what this word is meant to be conveying. 
Harmon explains his viewpoint by saying that the word used here in the Hebrew text for son is not the usual word, ben, but the Aramaic form, bar. Early versions had difficulty with this verse and rendered bar with words suggesting they understood it to be bor, B-O-R, which is a word that means pure. He goes on to say, however, bar, B-A-R, as son is attested in the Old Testament. Numerous suggestions have been made for amending the text, but the traditional Masoretic text is strongly attested and should be maintained. Again, this is his viewpoint. He goes on to say, three explanatory comments should be made. First, Aramaic was the common language for much of the ancient Near East over many centuries, and it was spoken from about the 9th century BC in most of the ancient Near East. Hence, the Davidic Solomonic Empire would have had Aramaic speakers within it. Secondly, the use of the usual Hebrew word would have resulted in an awkward conjunction of ben, pen, if you're reading it in Hebrew. And so to avoid dissonance, bar pen may have been used instead. Thirdly, the choice of the Aramaic word may have been done deliberately to bring greater force to the message to Gentile kings who presumably would have been Aramaic speakers. And that's the end of his quote. Though we don't have a problem with this word being Aramaic and saying kiss the sun, I don't think any of those reasons for his belief that it was intended to be the Aramaic word for sun are very compelling or very strong reasons. Thompson takes a different view. He says kiss the sun translates the Masoretic text reasonably well, and it makes sense in light of the ancient custom of paying honor through a kiss of greeting, like we see in 1 Samuel 10.1. But this reads the Masoretic text bar as sun as an Aramaic word. He says, this is not so much impossible, you can see it in Proverbs 31 too, it's simply very odd. Why suddenly, and with no apparent benefit, use the Aramaic? He states that the New Jerusalem Publication Society, which is who puts out the Jewish Tanakh, takes this word here as a Hebrew instead of an Aramaic word that means clean or pure, as I mentioned earlier. And they translate this, pay homage in good faith. In other words, when it's saying kiss the sun, the word kiss is referring to paying homage to do it in purity, to do it in a clean way. And thus, they're extending that out to mean in good faith. Another approach is by Kidner, who points out that the word the sun that you find in the King James Version and a couple of others is a very doubtful translation since the definite article is lacking, which means it doesn't really say kiss the sun. It just would be saying kiss sun or a sun, which would be very awkward in Hebrew, just like it is in English. He goes on to say, it's in Aramaic that this word bar means sun. In Hebrew, it means pure. And if this, or the word B-O-R, bor, which is the word for purity in Hebrew, may be taken adverbially, it will make the phrase a command to kiss sincerely or to pay true homage, which is how you see, as I just quoted, the Jewish Tanakh translates it. He says, this seems to be the best solution. Although the sun is apparently not mentioned in this verse, verses 7 and on have already used that title and they left no doubt of its implications. As one more perspective, Grogan quotes Craigie's contention that Aramaic is known to be used in Syria-Palestine from at least the 9th century BC. The words are addressed to foreign nations and kings, which would be Aramaic speaking, whereas the word sun in verse 7 is used by God in speaking of his king, the king over the Israelites. The weight of the supposed evidence for this being the Aramaic word for sun stuck in the middle of here with no reason to suddenly go to Aramaic is, in my humble opinion, a bit weak. And I'm not 100% sure that this should be translated sun here. It could be, though, that the Masoretic scribes concluded that this was a continuation of the statements about the sun that started in Psalms 2-7, 
And they felt justified in their belief that this phrase here should be reiterating that title. Though, again, it's very odd that it would be reiterating it in Aramaic instead of Hebrew. There are many translations that do not translate this kiss the sun because they think that it's not an Aramaic word, but a Hebrew word, as I've said several times already. The Tanakh, which translates this phrase, pay homage in good faith, lest he be angered. The Aramaic Targum actually translates it a little differently, which is telling because the Aramaic Targums were made before the time of Jesus, which is long before the time the Masoretic scribes thought this was speaking in Aramaic. But in the Aramaic Targum, this scripture is translated, accept instruction, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, which is even more different than the way it's translated in the Masoretic text. In either case, though, the idea would still be present that homage is to be given to the Son because he was the object from Psalms 2-7 on. In Psalms 2-7, where he's called the Son, and this seems to be continuing to address issues related to him, and giving homage to him is part of serving the Lord God his Father, and by extension, giving homage to God. So whether someone agrees or disagrees that this is intended to be the word son in Psalms 2.12, the son, and by extension God his father, is still the one to whom this submission and homage is being offered, and the one in whom our trust is to be placed. So even if that title is not present in this verse, it wouldn't change the meaning of the verse in any kind of significant way. If the phrase, kiss the son, is an accurate representation of what God originally intended in the original language of the original scripture, it's not unusual to use that kind of description for the kind of homage we see that's being given to the son in this psalm. You could take it literally, in terms of literally kissing the son, as there are a number of examples in the Bible of that type of interaction that use the very same Hebrew word for kiss here, which is nashak, N-A-S-H-A-Q. One of them is Jacob's kissing of his father in Genesis 27, 26, and 27, which is part of a formal approach to his father that preceded him receiving his father's blessing. You can see Jacob's kissing of Joseph's sons in Genesis 48, 10, that appears to have been not only an expression of affection, but a formal opening to his patriarchal blessing on each of them that's recorded in the verses that follow that. That kind of interaction isn't only part of a ceremonial or formal greeting or introduction to a formal blessing. It's also sometimes the action of one person who's showing obeisance, homage, subservience to someone else, which is what appears to be the case in Psalms 2.12. When Aaron met Moses in the wilderness at the Mount of God, recorded in Exodus 4.27, he kissed him. That might simply have been an expression of affection between two brothers, but it's very likely it was much deeper in meaning and was communicating respect for and homage to his brother Moses, similar to what we see Moses himself do when his father-in-law Jethro comes to the camp of Israel in Exodus 18.7, where Moses does something very similar. He's described as doing obeisance and kissing his father-in-law. Another example is Samuel in 1 Samuel 10.1, who kissed Saul when he anointed him to be king over Israel. Sometimes we see this type of interaction being done in the opposite sense of what you see expressed in Psalms 2.12, where something being done by someone lesser to someone greater, where you instead see it as a sign of favor or blessing that's given from someone superior to someone subordinate. Like in David's son Absalom's manipulative use of that method in 2 Samuel 15.5-6, when he kissed those who did obeisance to him. Or in the case of David, his father's kiss and blessing that was given to Barzillai in 2 Samuel 19.39. One of the most potent statements about this type of interaction, though, in a negative context that powerfully communicates its deeper meaning, is found in God's statement to Elijah regarding those who have remained faithful to him in that wicked generation. In 1 Kings 19.18, it says, Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, 
and every mouth which hath not kissed him. That declaration is bookended on both sides by comments about the calling of Elisha to be Elijah's successor that you see in 1 Kings 19.16-17 and 19.19-21. Elijah was very likely the mightiest of all the 7,000 men who refused to bow to Baal or to kiss his mouth. And his conviction to remain true to God alone was part of what qualified him for the calling that God intended him to fulfill. The statement in 1 Kings 19.18 tells us one dimension of what it tells us one dimension of what's meant by kissing someone as part of an act of homage to them. There seems to be a distinction between bowing to Baal and kissing his mouth in this statement. A person can bow the knee to another person, or in this case, even bow the knee to a false god, without really desiring to do it, or even agreeing in their heart with the one to whom they're bowing. They may just be intimidated or threatened into doing it, and may not even want to submit to or worship the one they're bowing the knee to. Some people bow their knee, whether literally or figuratively, to a false god, a corrupt leader, or some kind of corrupted political system, even though they don't believe in or agree with what they're bowing the knee to in order to avoid conflict or persecution. Other people become so enamored with what they're bowing the knee to that they kiss its mouth as well, which I believe expresses the idea that they love it and they have a desire for an intimate relationship with it. As I said, bowing the knee is an act that can be carried out without you being in agreement with who you're bowing the knee to or without being intimately engaged with them, but it's still an act of insurrection against God to bow to false idols or evil powers of some kind. Kissing the mouth is worse yet because it's an expression of intimacy that's a product of an internal agreement or state of harmony that you're in with whoever you're kissing the mouth of and a desire to be in relationship with the one that you're kissing. Both actions are spiritual abominations, though, because no relationship, whether it's put on or whether it's actual, that someone might have with false gods is always spiritual adultery. Pretending to be in a relationship with Baal or any other false god or corrupt leader or corrupt political system by bowing the knee to it is still an act of sin, even if you don't believe in or agree with the entity or thing that you're bowing the knee to. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the three young Hebrew men in Daniel 3, would not bow to the image that Nebuchadnezzar set up. They didn't even attempt to justify how they might have gotten away with doing so in order to keep the peace or avoid confrontation or something else, or why doing so would not have been a big deal because they weren't really worshiping the image in their hearts. They not only didn't desire to worship the image, they would never have allowed the impression to be given to anyone watching them, anyone that could have seen them, that they were doing so. In Hosea 13, you see this kind of expression used to refer to the worship of Baal and other false gods. The first two verses of that chapter, it says, When Ephraim spake trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. But when he offended in Baal, he died. And now they sin more and more and have made them molten images of their silver and idols, according to their own understanding, all of it the work of the craftsmen. They say of them, Let the men that sacrifice kiss the calves. Calves, there aren't the calves of a person. They're calves in terms of young bulls. And the calves in this statement are almost certainly a reference to the two calves that were set up by Jeroboam as false idols in 1 Kings 12, 28 to 33. He set those false idols up in order to draw the Israelites in the north away from the worship that was centered around the temple in Jerusalem so that he could keep them separated from their brethren in the south. Kissing those calves was a sign of homage and desire to be in a spiritual relationship with the false gods that they represented. Some scholars believe there were Hebrews who were just going along with the program, so to speak, just like bowing the knee to Baal, by sacrificing to the calves, but who didn't really believe in them or didn't desire to worship them, and that because of that, they actually required them to kiss 
the calves as a test by their paganized brethren to prove that they were entering into relationship with those false gods. Adam Clark says that this was the test. If there be a Jew that pretends to sacrifice and whose conversion is dubious, conversion to false gods, let him come openly and kiss the calves. This will show what he is. No real Jew would do this. If he be an idolater, he will not scruple. In other words, he won't have any problem kissing those calves. Historically, that could be done in several ways. Sometimes idols were directly kissed by those that were showing adoration for them. And sometimes those who worship false gods, if an idol of that god was distant or set up where it couldn't be easily accessed, some high place or maybe not in the location where you're at, those worshipers would kiss their own hands as an expression of homage to the idol and sometimes lift up their hands or wave them in some way to show that they were giving that kiss to those idols. It'd almost be like someone blowing a kiss to someone. That is what some scholars believe Job was referring to in Job 31:27 as something that he had not done. To get the whole context of that, I'll quote from the 26th to the 28th verse of Job 31. He says, If I beheld the sun when it shined, or the moon walking in brightness, he's talking about beholding them in terms of worshiping them, and my heart had been secretly enticed, or my mouth hath kissed my hand, this also were an iniquity to be punished by the judge, for I should have denied the God that is above. What Job is saying is, if I had worshipped false gods, even in some secret way that wasn't obvious to others, it would be an iniquity that's worthy of punishment, because doing so would be rejecting the true God. Sadly, the largest branch of what calls itself Christianity in this world has allowed the same type of idolatry to enter into their religious order, where people kiss the rings of high-level leaders of the Babylonish church as a sign of homage and submission to those human leaders, Sometimes they kiss the feet of individuals or the feet of statues, and in doing so, they not only give homage to a man or to an idol that's due only to God and Christ, they make men idols as well. In contrast to this kind of obeisance to idols and a desire for intimate engagement with false gods and those who give that kind of homage inappropriately to idols, those who are called to kiss the son are to give their obeisance and homage only to him and by extension to his father. The Shulamite, who pictures Christ's bride-to-be in the Song of Solomon, expresses her desire for that kind of relationship with her bridegroom. In the first chapter of the Song of Solomon, the second verse, she says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. And Song of Solomon 8.1 says, I would kiss thee, yea, I should not be despised. Though certainly that could be describing a natural kiss between a husband and a wife, there is a far deeper spiritual connotation there of the intimate state of spiritual relationship between Christ and his bride. Psalms 2.12 goes on to talk about those who do not do so, perishing from the way under the wrath of God or of his Son. Those who don't enter into a relationship with the Son of God are going to instigate his wrath and anger as an extension of his Father's wrath and eventually will face destruction. I realize this sounds like very harsh language, but we have to remember that the Son has been reaching out in love and extending his arms of mercy to those who aren't in a relationship with him for almost 2,000 years now. And he's going to continue doing that, though I believe in a much firmer way, throughout the millennial reign as well. Christ is offering a relationship that's intended to deliver individuals from judgment and eventually to give them eternal life and immortality. And those who refuse to enter into a relationship with him, no matter how often and how long he's extended the invitation to them, and who, just like those described in this psalm, have not only refused his invitation, but are working in direct opposition to his will and attempting to undermine his message and to turn others from being in a relationship with him, are in the process of being proven reprobate if they haven't already become reprobate. 
and thus deserving of nothing but destruction. The statement that these individuals may perish when his wrath is kindled but a little may convey the deadly serious nature of rejecting a relationship with Jesus even before his wrath reaches the kind of level we'll see when he returns to judge the earth in righteousness and destroy the wicked. Those who are willfully rejecting him and working against him in this present day before the great day of wrath yet to come might, through their iniquitous insurrection against him, receive their judgment now. The description of the opening of the sixth seal in Revelation 6 includes the judgment of some of the very same categories of men that are described as standing against God and Christ in this second psalm. In the 15th and 16th verse of Revelation 6, it says, The kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? That's describing the beginning of the waves of wrath and judgment that are going to fall on this earth as Christ returns to rule and reign and as this world moves into the millennial reign period and the final judgments that will follow that period. Anyone who wants to avoid the terrible wrath of the Lamb to come should seek the mercy that's afforded by a relationship with him in this day when, as the second psalm says, his wrath is kindled but a little. It hasn't yet reached its fullness and there's still an opportunity for mercy for those that will turn to him. The phrase, when his wrath is kindled but a little, is another example of a challenging translation. It can be translated in several slightly different ways. I'll give you just two examples of other ways English translations have translated it. The New American Standard Bible says, Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. The English Standard Version translates it, Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. If those translations are a more accurate way of rendering the Hebrews than the way the King James Version translates it, they might communicate that there will be a rising of his wrath in response to their continued rebellious rejection of him, rather than the idea that seems to be what the King James is conveying, that his wrath is just presently limited. In other words, if the wording of the King James is correct, it sounds like it's saying right now his wrath is not great. His wrath is not as great as it will become. It's limited in comparison. But it is just as possible to translate this, that his wrath is in the process of rising or being kindled to a great degree, and now is the time, before it gets to that degree, for you to turn to the Lord. Both would be true practically, by the way, considering that his wrath hasn't reached its apex yet, and his wrath does have the potential to be quickly kindled against those who continue to vehemently and blasphemously reject him and his father. Another issue of debate is that some scholars argue about what way those who reject the Son will perish from. Some believe this is talking about the ungodly perishing from their own way, that those who seek to walk in their own way and refuse to enter into relationship with Jesus and to walk in the way of righteousness will perish in their own corrupted way, the path they've chosen for themselves. Others believe that the way here is the way of righteousness that these individuals will perish from. In kind of a poetic way of saying it, they'll perish away from it. They'll perish because they'll be outside of God's path of salvation, or if they were in the way and they refuse to continue walking in the way by going on with God in an obedient relationship with Him, after entering the way through faith and repentance, they would eventually perish by leaving the way, by leaving the narrow way that leads to life and going out into the broad way that leads to death and destruction that you see in Matthew seven thirteen and 14. All the different possibilities for what this might be referring to are true, though. 
All those who are walking in their own way in resistance to God's way are certainly going to eventually perish. And those who don't enter into God's way will perish outside of it. As well as the fact that those who have entered into God's way but don't continue in it will eventually perish as well. Final statement of this psalm. Blessed are all who put their trust in Him and the Son and who are by extension putting their trust in God as Father. That last benediction not only directly connects this psalm back to the blessed man in Psalm 1, but it gives a solution to the challenges and the way out of the potential judgment of God that's presented in Psalms 2. Psalms 1 begins the description of the blessed man, and Psalms 2 ends with the key requirement of what is necessary to be such a man, putting your trust in God and in His Son. Psalms 2 begins the description of the world and its leaders that are at war with God and the revolutionary rebellion that continues against him and is rising in its pitch as the time of his judgment approaches. But it declares that no rebellion against God can stand and that he has already appointed a king that will bring the world back into subjection to him. And it finally concludes with a last call to those who remain in rebellion to turn from their insurrection and enter into a relationship with the king who came and died for them and to offer them redemption. Those presently cursed and outside of relationship with God can be blessed if they'll turn to his son and place their trust in him. And those who are already in a relationship with the Lord will be blessed because they have placed their trust in him and his son. This great blessing is promised to all who place their trust in the Lord. But we have to seek the purpose of God rather than our own vain imaginations. And we've got to learn to love the bands and cords of our relationship with him that are the connective tissue between us and that are the protective guardrails for us and battlements against the entry of the enemy into our hearts. In order to do so, we have to serve him with godly fear, and we have to rejoice with trembling, and we have to kiss the Son by giving him the homage that he's due, and in doing so, make him the overriding object of all of our affections.